Well, I hope you all remember where to find the book of Ephesians. It's been several months. We took a little excursion for the summer while the college students were here and did a study on the Sermon on the Mount, and we are in Ephesians chapter 5. We have the end of chapter 5 and chapter 6 to go through, so we're going to spend the uh, next couple of months looking at various topics that Paul addresses, the topics of Christian marriage and the Christian home and the Christian in the workplace, and then the unremitting spiritual warfare that we find ourselves in, these very practical topics that we look at as we are concluding over between, I'd say, now and Thanksgiving. We'll be looking at the rest of the book of Ephesians. So if you want to turn in your Bibles with me, I'm going to read this morning, beginning at chapter 5, verse 21, and down to verse 33. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33 says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. Well, let's take just a couple of minutes and catch ourselves up, review a little bit Paul's overarching what he's speaking about, and what I think is actually one of the most beautiful letters about what theologians call ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. This is absolutely one of the most beautiful letters about the church. If you remember, he said, here's the church. It is rooted in the gospel, and it's renewed out of the gospel to live as that new humanity, the new people of God for the glory of God. First of all, chapters 1 to 3, they're rooted in the gospel. Chapter 1 gives that breathtaking eulogy, and a eulogy means a blessing. Paul gives a blessing to God. Bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he praises God for everything he's given us in Christ. We have been chosen in Christ. We've been adopted in Christ. We've been redeemed in Christ. We have been forgiven in Christ. We have been revealed a mystery in Christ. We've been given the spirit in Christ. And we've been given an inheritance. Then in chapter 2, he speaks again about the work of reconciliation accomplished by Christ and in and through the spirit. Where he says, through the cross, God has created one new man, one new humanity making peace through his cross. And he says, I have formed that one new humanity, now the church made up of both Jew and Gentile, made up of every nation and every tribe, and I formed them into a house, a temple, a home, a spiritual home that Jesus is the head of, and that by my spirit I dwell there. And then he roots that home, that house, us, the church, in his love. 
He closes out chapter 3 with a breathtaking prayer of love where he says how the church is rooted and grounded and established in the love of Christ that he's hearkening and alluding to, again, temple imagery where he basically says this love of Christ, the width and the breadth and the depth and the length of the love of Christ, the love that even surpasses or exceeds knowledge. And he makes this prayer, now that he's rooted us in the gospel, the reconciling work, the love of Christ, you're rooted in that. Now you can be renewed to live as the new humanity filled with Christ's love in unity and holiness Basically, making the invisible kingdom visible. That's our ultimate calling. To live in unity and holiness, making the invisible kingdom visible. And the most tangible way we do that is through our relationships. Through our relationships, husband and wife, parents and children, in the workplace, And before you think this is only talking about husbands and wives and that kinds of thing, let's go back in our context. He started early on, chapter 5, verse 2. He says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So if you're not married, if you're single, if you're widowed, if you're divorced, you can't fall asleep on me now. Don't tune me out. These are applications That apply to all of us. He's describing specifically the vocation of marriage, the vocation of husbands and wives. But his specific call applies to all. Live a life of love, submission, authority, self-giving, sacrifice, other-centered applies to all of us. And I know some of you are, you know, I can just kind of hear the conversations going on now. I started the reading and the reading starts with wives submit to your husbands and some of you are going, oh no. And then some of you are going, wait a second. Husbands love your wives. I'll tell you how my wife, she, if she were here, she, she goes like this. She goes, Jeff, I'll be glad to submit. I will submit. When you love me like Christ loves the church. You know what that means? When you die, I submit. <laughs> now those are the details of our vocation. Now, And I'm going to do something very daring as a preacher. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to cover those details next week. Now, I hope I don't have an empty house next week. But what we want to do this week is pull back and look at the big picture. Because this is kind of how Paul does it. In verse 31, Paul actually pulls back and he gives a framework for marriage and a framework for covenant relationships when he goes all the way back to creation and God's creation and intent Quoting out of Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so before diving into the details on the vocation of husbands and wives within the vocation of marriage, I want to kind of broaden the picture. I want to look at the big picture, and I want to get a framework from within which we can dial into the details. And this, to me, is so important that we do this, Because if not, here's what we can tend to fall into. We fall into the trap of we look at relationships and we look at marriage and we look at the New Testament as just a series of rules to keep. Okay, I've got my respect rule and my love rule and my sacrifice rule and my submission rule and I... No. We need to look at it within the framework of what was God's creation design 
Because marriage falls within the intent he had for all of creation when he says a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And that framework, God's creation intent, is found in Genesis 1 and 2, which gives us the big picture. Genesis 1 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible begins, and for that matter, it ends with the coming together of heaven and earth. In Genesis 1 and 2, you've got these two complementary accounts of creation. God created heaven and an earth. And as one writer, one commentator pointed out, he says, how heaven and earth tend in our Western culture to be thought of as two, comp- as two independent and totally separate spheres. But instead, in his words, he says, they are twin interlocking spheres of God's good creation to complementary parts. And he says that when we see this in the creating, he says, sees these complementary pairs in the creation of sea and dry land, the plant and animal kingdom, and then within the animal kingdom, kind of the apex of creation, the creation of man in the image of God as male and female. Male and female designed to complement, to work together, to go together, And you see this reach its fulcrum in Genesis 2 in the institution of marriage. And this is what Paul is basing his teaching on. You need to understand that he is alluding back to this creation intent when he gives you the specific details. And if you don't know the creation intent, you will distort and misunderstand the details. So instead of reading Ephesians 5 like it is, we tend to read it as a set of rules or a rule book. Instead, as this one commentator says, whereas we as humans are called to live as pointers, as signposts of the movement in the Bible from covenant to new covenant, from creation to new creation. So let's approach this text this way and ask ourselves the question, what is the big picture framework for marriage and for covenant relationships? See, I'm not letting the rest of you fall asleep. I'm not letting the rest of you tune me out. What's the framework for relationships of which marriage, obviously, is an intimate part? Let's ask three questions of this text. First of all, what is the goal of marriage and relationships? Second of all, what is the problem of marriage and relationships? And then lastly, what is the hope of marriage and relationships? There's a goal, yes, there's a problem, and there's hope. Remember, the framework for marriage is creation and God's creation and intent. And it's amazing in creation because if you look at God's account, he's creating and what is he's creating and then he's evaluating. He says over and over again, it is good. It is good. It is good. Morning and evening. It's good. I did this and it's good. I made this. It's good. And he gets to the end of it and he says, wow, it's very good. Then you get to Genesis 2, verse 18, and all of a sudden he writes, It is not good. Now, you are meant to be a little bit surprised and kind of blown away by that because you have the repetition over and over of it's good, it's good, it's good, and then the exact language, time out, it's not good. And you're meant as a reader to go, what's not good? And put in context, God has just placed a man in the garden and he's told him why he's here. You're in the garden, which is basically the sanctuary of God. And you're here to guard it. You're here to preserve it. You're here to keep it holy. You're here to keep it and make it beautiful. You're here to envision it and take care of it. 
And you're here to make the whole earth like the garden of God. In other words, he's given man significance and meaning, purpose and a vocation. And the man has everything he needs, right? Sin hasn't entered the world. He's got all the resources at his disposal. Wrong. God says it is not good. He has everything except that God's design was that this vocation, this purpose, it be accomplished in community. He makes the first community marriage. But even broaden the picture. All of the purposes we find as a church, as God's holy temple, as the sanctuary of God, are to be accomplished in community. God gave us the gift of marriage. God gave us the gift of family. God gave us the gift of the body of Christ to give us assistance to accomplish our vocation. Marriage is a gift given to help us in accomplishing our vocation, to bear witness to the nations of the glory of God. Remembering the goal of marriage is intensely practical. Let me show you a couple reasons why. I remember my wedding day. It was a wonderful day. Probably one of my favorite days of my life. You all know how great a planner and administrator Evie is. She organized the thing top to bottom. She gave me one job. You know what my one job was? Just show up. I don't know that I've done any job the rest of our 27 years of marriage as well as I did that job. I just showed up. And everything came off without a hitch. It came off beautifully. We worshipped. We had our family and friends together. We sang our favorite hymn, How Great Thou Art. And that is the aw shucks, warm, romantic side of it. But let's be honest. Marriage can also be very hard at times. It requires a lot of work. There can be disillusionment of so many husbands and wives. We look into the patterns of relating. Ask ourselves the question, not just of husbands and wives, but of all of relationships, friendships within the body of Christ. Why is it so difficult to be vulnerable? Why is it difficult to be transparent? Why do we so often wear masks? Why do we hide from each other? Why are we afraid to share with one another what's really going on? Our hopes, our fears, our anger at God, our doubts of God. Why is it so hard to be real? Why is there tension? Why is there awkwardness? Why is there defensiveness? It is not good for the man to be alone. I read this definition by one writer who says, oneness in marriage... And unity in fellowship, oneness in marriage, is the mutually satisfying relationship that develops when each partner recognizes the opportunity that marriage provides. He writes, the route to oneness is helping our mates to appreciate more their fundamental worth as people who bear the image of God and who are truly secure and significant in Christ. In other words, the route to oneness is to give our mates a taste of the reality of the spiritual riches they have in Christ. I can even bring it back. The root to unity is to give our friends, our brothers and sisters of Christ, a taste of the reality of the spiritual riches we share in Christ. Which means, how does unity occur and how does oneness occur? 
when we recognize the opportunity we have and the goal we have of all relationships to minister to the other person. Relationships and marriage in particular is an opportunity for ministry. That means, and here's where I'm going to take the risk of you throwing tomatoes at me, the purpose of marriage and the purpose of relationships is not your happiness. The goal of marriage and the goal of relationships is not your happiness. Now, don't get me wrong, let me clarify. Happiness will occur, but only as a byproduct of the goal. Only as a byproduct if your chief intention is, how can I give the other person a taste of what they have in Christ? Paul rooted us in the gospel, our chosenness, our redemption, our adoption, our inheritance, our forgiveness, the revelation we have. How can I give my spouse a taste of that reality? How can I, by how I listen to them, how I empathize with them, how I'm gentle with them, how I confront them, how I share with them, how am I giving them a taste of Christ? How are we in the church as we minister to one another, as we minister together, how are we giving each other a taste of of the riches, of the glory that we share in Christ by how we relate to one another. Now that's the goal. Stating that goal reveals a problem. And the problem is, what do we do with our feelings? How many of us always feel validated and secure and significant in Christ? See, in the potential misunderstanding here, The potential problem is to believe that somehow we must always feel on top of the world. I feel approved and validated and vindicated and secure and significant before we function as we should. Uh Uh-uh. That's not the case. Even if we don't feel secure or significant, we're still responsible to behave and to believe the gospel that in Christ I'm more loved, in Christ I'm more righteous, in Christ I'm more accepted In Christ, I'm more approved. In Christ, I'm more delighted in than I could ever dare imagine or dream. Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In other words, if you are a Christian, you are complete through your union with Christ. Jesus is enough. Jesus is more than enough. How different would we relate if we believed this verse? But there's one problem. Yes, we confessionally believe it, but we don't always functionally believe it. We don't want Christ to complete us. Why don't we want Christ to complete us? We, don't, we want to do it on our own. And this brings up the problem of marriage, and for that matter, the problem of relationships. And in a nutshell, it's idolatry. Tim Keller defines idolatry as finding satisfaction in something, in anything, a good thing, a wonderful thing, a created thing, but in anything other than God. He says it is to look for the things we legitimately need. We need relationship. We need security. We need significance. We need hope. We need meaning. But when we look for them in anything other than God, when we turn anything into an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. And there's only one Jesus. And there's only one person who can be Jesus for us, and that is Jesus. How does that play out in relationships? 
How does that play out in marriage? One writer I read gives the following example. He says, this is a common example of practical idolatry. He says, and it's trying to meet our needs in and through the other person, our spouse. He says, so take for example, consider what might be really happening when a couple gets married. He says, you have two people, they're justified sinners, they love God, they belong to Christ, but functionally they come with a set of baggage, a set of personal needs, pressing, demanding fulfillment. So as they stand before the minister and they recite their vows to love and respect each other, he says there are strong but unconscious or hidden motivations that stir inside them. And part of the challenge of our holiness and sanctification, what did David pray? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Charles Spurgeon says we have to have the courage to be brutally honest with ourselves. Part of that brutally honest is make known to me my unconscious motivations that I can't find for myself. And this writer says, he says, picture a tape recorder that could somehow tune in to the couple's unconscious motivations. And he says, it may sound something like this. He says, you have the husband. He's reciting his vows. And these unconscious hidden intentions go, I need to feel important, and I expect you to meet that need by submitting to my every decision, whether good or bad, by respecting me no matter how I behave, and by supporting me in whatever I choose to do. I want you to treat me as the center of the world and the most important man in the world. My goal in marrying you is to find my significance through you. An arrangement in which God tells you and commands you to submit to me sounds very attractive. I do. I'll take that, uh, that deal. Then he says, then you have the wife who says, I've never felt as deeply loved as my nature requires. I'm expecting you to meet that need through gentle affection, even when I'm growling. Thoughtful consideration, whether I'm always sensitive to you or not. And an accepting, romantic sensitivity to my emotional ups and downs. Don't let me down. I do. And I like in this, I say, when you have these two people, and they're not aware of their functional, idolatrous needs pressing against each other. It's like a warm front that comes together with a cold front to create a thunderstorm. <laughs> Anybody ever relate to that? Not just in marriage, but how about in your relationships? See, this writer goes on to say, a marriage bound together by commitments to exploit the other, fulfilling one's needs, can legitimately be described as a tick-on-a-dog relationship. Just as a hungry tick clamps onto a nourishing host in anticipation of a meal, so each partner unites with the other in the expectation of finding what his or her personal nature demands. The only thing here is you have two ticks and no dog. <laughs> the goal of marriage is you are full in Christ, you are complete in Christ, and you minister to the other, giving them a taste of that fullness in Christ, a taste of the riches they share in Christ, and both parties doing that. The problem is you have spirit and flesh, and flesh is characterized by an idolatrist. I refuse to have Christ meet my needs. I will have something and someone else meet my needs, and you're a great candidate for that. 
So what is the hope? The hope is the gospel. Go back to verse 31 where Paul is alluding to Genesis 2 again where he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. One commentator again says, Do you recognize that the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus left his father in order to become united to you, his wife? What is the gospel? Jesus leaving and cleaving. He left his father's throne above. He set aside voluntarily his glory so that he could make you his bride, so that he could make you his spouse. The hope of the gospel is that we are united to Jesus in his death and resurrection, which means by implication that whatever is true of Jesus is true of us. What do you think the father thinks of Jesus? How do you think the father feels? What is the father's facial expression? What is his demeanor towards Jesus? Now that righteousness is counted towards you. How does the father feel towards you? And that is the hope for relationships. If how the father feels and acts and deals with you fills you up, you can then approach Others, depending on the Lord, to meet your needs for validation and for approval and for hope and for significance. And you can approach others, offering them that taste, looking at others and going, how can I minister to you rather than demanding you come through for me? See, the implication of this, and this is why this is, if you look at this as a set of rules... You're just looking to have a nice box, be in control of it. Maybe control is your idol. I recognize that. I personally like the rules. I'm trying to repent of my rule-keeping tendency because I like to be in control that says, if I do check, 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 everything's okay. God says, take the box and throw it away. Instead, let me give you a picture. The picture is, United to Christ, you are significant and secure. Now move out. Dare to move out into what may look like an abyss of the world. It can be terrifying to relate to others. You ever notice we don't always know how others will respond to us? I don't know about you, but that feels sometimes terrifying to me. If I'm vulnerable, what will happen? If I share my heart, what will happen? Here's how it feels to me. It feels like I'm stepping out over a cliff and God is saying, jump. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of going, that first step looks like a doozy. I'm not sure I like jump. Put the mask on, be in control. That sure feels safer. And then God's saying, I have a rope. And the rope is called the gospel. And the gospel, when you step out, functionally step out and relate to others, maybe in the opposite of what your natural way is. So if your natural way is to be gentle and tender, maybe you will dare to confront somebody. Not letting go of the gentleness and tenderness. And maybe if your way is to confront people, and you're good at that, 
Maybe the stepping off the cliff for you will be the gentleness and the tenderness while still confronting people when they have need for it. When you recognize that the rope of the gospel, when you jump off the cliff, it won't let you go. It's not about you holding onto the rope. It's that the rope has you. The gospel is not that you have Jesus. The gospel is that Jesus has you. Because what did Paul say in Romans chapter 8? He says, for I am convinced, for I am sure. This is right after he's been talking about the sufferings of this present time. I consider now that our sufferings are not worth comparing to the weight of glory to be revealed in us. He says, for I am sure, I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, the present nor the future, height nor depth, nor, oh, by the way, anything else in all creation. So the fact that I may totally mess up this relationship, I may step off the cliff and step off with two left feet, I may totally do it wrong, it won't be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the framework for relationships, husbands and wives, parents and children, and relationships in the body of Christ is that creation intent that we would be a symbol and a picture and a signpost, as this writer put, moving from creation to new creation, from covenant to new covenant through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would remember the goal and that we would have the courage to identify the problem and that we would identify the problem in us. And that even as we identify the problem, we would do so knowing that there is hope. Knowing that there is the hope that, Jesus, you left your Father's throne above. You left Father in order to cleave to us and make us your bride. I don't even know that we can imagine how deep and how personal and how intimate that relationship is that we have with you. But I pray that we'd surrender our hearts to spending eternity learning to spending eternity being filled and then daring to approach each other out of that security. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.